Amen. Amen. So in Ecclesiastes 2, there's two phrases here. Let me remind you uh, to kind of remember throughout this book. Number one is hevel. You remember this? Hevel is this word vanity or meaningless or futile. And it's this idea that we were talking about a few weeks ago is this idea of smoke, where we know smoke is real or fog is real, but when you go to try to grab it, it immediately just kind of dissipates. It it is no longer there. And so, so many things in life, especially if you're not following God, it just is hevel. There's, there's nothing to it. And that really is the second phrase that you see in Ecclesiastes all the time is under the sun. And this is so important for us to understand this book. He's saying, okay, I am living a life as if God didn't exist. And how many of our neighbors, our loved ones, this is the life that they're living. They're living as if there is no God. And so in essence, this book is a memoir of sorts of a deep, deeply secular person. Somebody you know lives this kind of life where life is what you make it. Meaning is what you define it as whatever you want to define it. And you'll find that often changes throughout your life. And this whole idea is when you die, it's over. So live life to the full. And so as we prepare our hearts for Ecclesiastes 2, I kind of want to take another 30,000-foot view and look at Ecclesiastes. And and really, there are three ways the secularist, again, if you know what that means, it just simply means like the non-religious person, finds significance in one of three ways. And I wonder if you've noticed this in culture today. Number one, you actually see this in Ecclesiastes 4, which we'll get to. A godless person, to find meaning in their life, they often find it by living for a cause living for some sort of justice movement. Now here's what you'll find. You see this in Ecclesiastes and it's true today. There are so many bad things in this world, you can't fight for all of them. And so you just kind of have to pick a lane. And so you have some actors who who decide to fight against environmentalism. There's there's other people who try to save all the dogs and all the puppies. There's, There's a million things. Some of you now, and praise the Lord for it, have a deep hurt and pain and compassion for the people of Ukraine. There's always a cause, and it's great. And so, so what happens, again, if it's a godless life, you discover an injustice. It has some sort of relation. You, you kind of feel for it, and you say, okay, I'm going to live my whole life fighting against this injustice. And so you buy the shirts, you attend the rally, you boycott organizations. And this is why some of us were so confused. People are so passionate about certain political campaigns. You're like, don't you have a life? Well, friends, if there is no God. Like, if this all there is, you got to pick something like that and worship it and fight for it. And again, I'm not saying fighting for justice is wrong. In fact, it's all throughout the scripture. The problem is, if there is no God, there is no basis for justice. If man wasn't created in the image of God, why are we fighting for our fellow mankind? If we're just atoms, if we're just machines, this should kind of logically be a dog-eat-dog world. And so what happens is is these people living for fighting against injustice is is hevel. There is still this pit in in their stomach. There's this emptiness because it's like, why am I fighting for this? If there is no God, if we're all going to wind up in the same place... And so it's Hevel. And so you fight nonetheless, but you know there's no real deep meaning behind it. I'm not saying, of course, not to fight for a cause, but you need to live for something even greater, and that's King Jesus. The second thing uh, that we'll see in the text, and we talked about it last week if you were here, the secularist finds significance by living for pleasure. And what did we say last week? The more you pursue pleasure, the more you will lose it. And so some of us, we live for the next vacation, Or we just simply live for the next weekend. 
and you only work hard in order to play hard. Here's something you discover. As you continue to pursue pleasure, you continue to lose pleasure. Again, life is just hevel. It's this, it looks real, but you try to grab it, and there's always this hollowness to it. Well, there's a third way that the secularist tries to find significance, and that's what we're going to look at today together, is we try to find to live a life for a career. You live for a career. You see this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Okay, justice is not working for me. Pleasure is fleeting. Surely a career, surely a job where I can climb the ladder and be significant. That's what's going to give me life. And today we're going to see how work also leads to heaven. Let's look at a few verses here. The first one I want you to see is 1, 3, because he set it up right away in the beginning of this text. He says, What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? All this hard work, what happens? And if you read Ecclesiastes 1, you read the rest of it, he goes on to say, futile, futile, hevel, it's all meaningless. Now logically, if we were to answer this question, what does a person gain for all of his efforts you would probably say compensation, right? You have to work in order to pay the bills, in order to enjoy my family. And so, yes, you do need to work. You need to provide food on the table. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians, if the person's not working, don't take care of him. He's being lazy. So this is not a message about stop working. Hear me. But we want more from work, don't we? We want this feeling of significance. I was looking it up this week. Did you know the average person spends 13 years of their life at work? Just 328 days, not even a full year of an average person's life, spends it socializing with friends. So 13 years of working, not even a full year of hanging out. Most of your life, do you know what it's mostly spent of? Sleeping. Amen. Praise God. About 26 years and a person's average lifetime is spent sleeping. So in our life, most of it is spent working if we're not sleeping. So the question is, how can work be significant? How can I, if I'm spending most of my time here, I need to make sure it has meaning. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, does it? Let's look at verse 18 together in chapter 2. He says, I hated all my work. Anybody else like, amen, right? I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. This is uh, something that you fill the pit of your stomach. It's like, even if I succeed, somebody else will take this over who didn't work, who didn't deserve what I just gave them. And he says, who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. And usually if somebody receives an inheritance without working for it, they're usually a fool. They don't know what it took to gain those sorts of things. He says, yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is futile. Verse 20. So I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored at under the sun. This is another way of saying like I got really depressed. I looked at all the work I did, and by the way, we need to remember, this is likely King Solomon, very successful, did a lot of achievements. He was like a really good worker, and yet he's thinking, I'm just depressed. Is life worth living if it's all about work? See, when there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, so he's saying this sweet spot, 
Some of you are actually good at your job and you actually spend a lot of your knowledge and skill and there is kind of this joy because you know you were like built for it. Even that, he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it. This too is hevel and a great wrong. For what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? What is the point? What is, why are we working every single day? For all his days are filled with grief, and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is futile. This too is hevel. He's saying when you try to chase significance off of a career, it gets really exhausting. Look at those kind of bullet points. There's three bullet points from this verse. It's number one, it's filled with grief. So it's never-ending exertion. You're always exhausted, right? You finish one project, the next one has to come. He says the occupation is sorrowful. This means it's always disappointing. One thing that's interesting about work especially is you're constantly under evaluation. And so if you succeed in the area, you get a raise, you get a promotion, and then you have to prove yourself over and over again. And if that wasn't enough, his mind does not rest at night. Your, your job is your, your worry about tomorrow because the market never sleeps. Some of you, you have jobs, you clock in and clock out, but you know you haven't even clocked out. You're still thinking about it. You're still stressed. You're still wondering what tomorrow will hold. So what's the solution? This is what he's going to. He's like, what's the point of all of this? Because this is exhausting. Even if I am successful, I'm going to feel this emptiness because I'm going to give it to somebody who didn't deserve it. Even if I'm good at it, it's still filled with grief. It's still sorrowful. I can't rest. It's exhausting. And so is the solution here to just stop working? No, we need to work. But let's look at the riddle that we actually see here in chapter 4 that was read earlier. So he says, again, jump to chapter 4. I saw that all labor and all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. That's interesting, isn't it? Most of us, why are we getting up, doing what we're doing? We're trying to be better than somebody else. We're envying what they have. And so that's what gives us motivation. But that's a hollow motivation. He says this too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. But the next two verses is a riddle that's quite interesting. He says the fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. This is supposed to be a disturbing picture. Think fold his arms. He's really kind of insinuating that of sleep, that of taking a nap, just kind of folding your arms and going to bed. So do we work? It's kind of pointless, it seems. But you know who's really a fool? The person who doesn't work at all. This is so hard to balance. He consumes his own flesh. He's hurting his own self. The other part, though, better one handful with rests. So this is the answer we're looking at today. One handful with the rest, I'll explain that. Then two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the win. This two handfuls with effort is, is talking about where all of life for you is work. It's, you just never stop working. And so he's actually this, in the Hebrew, it's so powerful. Your hands are like cramping because you're gripping at work so hard. You're trying to find all your fulfillment from your career, from the next raise, all that sort of thing. So he says, that's foolish. It's pursuit of the win. So the person who folds his arms and takes a nap and just doesn't work at all, fool. The person who does nothing but work, fool. So how do we get this handful with rest? And honestly, in our today's culture, we seem to think it's the answer is one or the other. Fold your arms, 
or work as hard as possible. Any of you seen that new show, Severance, on Apple? It's really good. I, we just finished. The ending's crazy. Now, in Severance, here's the whole idea. I'll try to explain it without ruining the show for you. But in, in Severance, there is a person. They go into the brain, and they put some sort of chip, and it's these people who they say they're going to do this where there is an innie and an outie. So the innie is the person. It's all one. I'm going to do terrible explaining this show. I'm always the worst at explaining shows. Wow, we're, we're really going somewhere here. Now, the innie, so you have this idea where, okay, when you go to work, when you step into the elevator, one side of the brain initiates, and now you're at work. And so when you're at work, your brain literally can't remember what's happening at home. And then when you get on the elevator to go back home, what happens? The other side of the brain's initiated. And when you're at home, you literally cannot remember when you were at work. Make sense? And it's really this picture of a lot of us think that would be the good life. We assume, man, if I can just not take, home, take work home with me, everything will be great. What I love about this show is it shows how destructive it is, and it's actually not helpful for you at all. But even within the show, it, it implies that the person who's always at work is miserable, and the person who's always at home is living the good life. And I'm hoping season two will show even the person who, again, the part of the brain, all he remembers is just being at home. They're depressed too. God created us to work, to contribute. And so both of those options are like the worst. And, and this is exactly what this text is saying. He's like the person who folds his arms, the Audi, he's full of futility. The any, the one who's always working, he's also a fool. See how I brought in severance with the Hebrew? Oh, this is why you pay me. All right, so no, just kidding. Now, look at this. This Hebrew is emphasizing this image here of what is the good, the right answer is better one handful with rest. What does that mean? So your working hand in the, again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I've been studying a lot this week. This is implying that the Jews would understand this in the original text here. A better uh, one handful with rest. So the one handful, it's implying that the palm is up. So he's saying this hand here, it works. But it works with a posture that God's in control. I'm working, but God can take this away any moment. I'm going to enjoy, I'm going to do the good work. I'm going to contribute to society, but I'm living life with an open hand. It's a lot about what we talked about last week, if you remember that message on, on pleasure. The other hand is resting. It's this picture of the hand being down and just kind of laying down. This is actually showing this picture that he's trying to point to us is a picture of a balanced life. One who works, works hard, but knows it can be taken away at any moment and one who also rests and enjoys the goodness of God. This is a paradox. This is very interesting. What, what is the point he's trying to make here? You're not working for significance. You are working from significance. This is the key. This is the gospel key here. Because Christ has died for you and delights in you and calls you his child, you are not working to be loved. You are working from a place of already being loved. And that's a huge difference. The fool who folds his arms just has given up on significance, not even going to try. The fool who works so hard is saying, if I just achieve more, then God will love me, or then life, I will be loved, I will be significant. And it's this understanding of God's in control, I'm going to work, but it's with my hand lifted up because I know God loves me no matter what. Jesus later in Matthew 11, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
And in our culture, we love to emphasize easy and light. But Jesus was also saying, you still have a yoke and you still have a burden. Jesus knows we are actually called to work. We're called to do. We're called to contribute. And only in Christ can we do this. Let me explain it another way. I am loving the Hebrew when it comes to this text. It's so good. There is a Hebrew word called, called avodah, and avodah means to work. Now, there's actually within this avodah, there are three meanings when it comes to work. And I think this will be helpful for us to understand how are we kind of missing the picture? How are we not living within our calling when it comes to work? So here's the first meaning is worship. Avodah means worship. For example, Exodus 8, 1, it says, Let my people go so that they may avodah, that they may worship me. What is worship? When we work, we're working as for the Lord. You see this in Colossians 3. You see this in other places. When we're working, you will miss out on work. Work will be futile if when you are working, you are not also thinking, God, I'm doing this for you. Here's the second element that work means in the text when you see avodah. The second one, avodah, also means service. So not only do you work to work hard for the Lord, you're also working to build others up. Joshua 24, 15, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve. We will be in service. We will build the kingdom of God and advance the kingdom through our service of others. And so some of us, we can see the direct correlation. Some of you are helping, uh, you know, some of you are lawyers, and so you're helping people uh, with the justice system. Some of you are teachers, and so you're contributing to society. Others of you, there's, uh, it's a little more difficult for you to see, but everything we do, all of our work, it can, it has the ability to build other people up. This is an important element. And the third element, avodah, also means calling. What is calling? You see this in the text, like in Exodus 34, 21. He says, six days you shall avodah, you shall work. What this means is your work, when you're working in your calling, you're working that is flowing from a sense of purpose, gifting, skill, and energy. Any of you, right, you, you work somewhere and you have no energy? Why? Because you don't like it. It's not your calling. It's so much harder. But when you're doing something you love, you're like, oh, the time is up. It's already time to go home. And so most of the culture today, we skip the worship, we skip the service, and we're just longing to find a job that fulfills our calling. So here's the beauty. How do we, again, this is the question we're looking at and submitting ourselves to this text. How do we live a life like this? We're working, but we know it's all from God, but we're also resting. How do we live that balanced life? Well, we have to make sure we have all three. When you work, we need to wrestle through this. You need to be worshiping, serving, and walking in your calling. What happens if you don't have all three? Let me show you. The first one, if you have worship plus service, it eventually leads to exhaustion from exertion. If you are in a job that doesn't align with your passions, with your skill sets, you are going to struggle to maintain energy and passion for it over the long haul. Right? You can have the, the right objective. God, this is for you, and this is for others. But if this job does not align with your own calling, you will be exhausted, burnt out. What you're longing for, and I think God has put this desire within us, is a psychological payoff. You don't want it to feel like work. 
You want to feel like you did something and you want to enjoy it. You want to say, okay, I'm good at this and I enjoy doing it. For many of us in the room, we have not gotten to this point. And it's hard. And it's this journey, right? How, how do you find your calling? It's a lot of asking God for wisdom. It's understanding that life is seasonal. Maybe right now you can't have that job that you love, but one day you will. I don't know. We can talk after church. Here's the second one. Some, some of you are in this place where you, you worship God. Your, your, your job is worship. You know it's for the Lord. You're doing it for God. And you're walking in your calling. You're skilled for this. You have energy for this. You feel great when you engage in it. But you don't think your work is about serving people. So what happens when it's just worship plus calling it equals people are the problem. I knew a lot of people in seminary when we would talk about ministry, kind of the funny thing to say, and I'm so sorry we say this about you, but people say like ministry is great if it weren't for the people. And we always laugh and think, ha ha, you know, but that's so sad. What does God say? Love God and love people. So some of us, though, we are in a job where you, you, you're doing it for the Lord and you know you're good at it, but you just hate everybody you're around. And you could care less about helping people and serving them and sacrificing for them. You're there for you. And so you think your job would be great if it weren't for people. Here, you maybe don't want a psychological payoff, but you do long for a social payoff, which is super ironic. Usually in this kind of situation where people are the problem, you ironically want those people to love you even though you hate them. Why don't they love me more? Why don't you love them more? Maybe that will help. Worship plus calling equals people are the problem. Maybe you feel that. This is actually huge in, in ministry. I love you. Trust me. All right, and the next one. All right, the next one is um, calling plus service. So some of us, we haven't even thought about this idea that work is worship. We haven't thought about the idea when we, when we strap up our boots every day or whatever it is that you do to go to work, you're thinking, God, I'm doing this for you. Instead, what you think is, yeah, I'm good at this. This is my calling. I was made for this. And I'm here to serve people. I'm here to make this city a better place. I'm here to make this community a better place. I'm here to raise up kids the right way, whatever it is. But when you have this kind of mentality that your job is just about calling and service, you will believe in the depths of your heart that rest isn't right. You will never stop. You will constantly lead yourself to burnout. Why? Because your job doesn't feel like it's contributing enough to the world. You think it's your responsibility to change the world. And it's on your shoulders. You have forgotten, this isn't just for me. This is for the Lord. This is an act of worship. And at the end of the day, God's in control. And if, and if I'm not doing this for God, then it's, it's all hevel. See, some of us, we look for a psychological payoff when it comes to work or a social payoff. And in this realm, we look for a spiritual payoff. We, we want our work to feel like it's making a difference. We want our work to feel like it's making the world spin. And because of that, some of us never stop working. Because we thought this whole thing's about us and what we can do for the world. Rather than this posture of submission, saying, God, you're in control. I'm doing this for you. At the end of the day, outcomes are none of my business. And I'm doing this to love and serve people. And I'm doing this in accordance with my gifts. And that's the last thing. This is what we're praying for that happens in your own life. 
you find this sweet spot. And I think this is a journey. I'm praying maybe the Holy Spirit will just give you the solutions tonight. But I'm hoping this at least starts the roadmap for you. What's my career? How do I pursue it? How do I enjoy it? Worship, this is for God. Calling, this fits my skill set and energy. Service, I'm doing this for my generation and the generations to follow. When you have that sweet spot, you are working from significance and not for it. You feel a sense of joy when you wake up in the morning. And what a gift. What a beautiful thing. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do we get to this sweet spot? How do we, like in Ecclesiastes 4, get to this position where we are balanced and rested, but we also work really, really hard? I guess you could say, I need... I mean, this is happening more and more, but for me, I've, I've had another, like, crisis, existential crisis. I think when you read Ecclesiastes, it's just kind of inevitable. But for me, I've recently just finished my book, finally, finished laboring over it. Um, it's been, like, three years, and now it's in the editing phase, but, like, I'm terrified of a few things. Like, I couldn't wait to finish, and now I'm terrified. I've been asking myself a couple questions. Number one, will anybody like it besides my wife? I don't know. Will they rip me apart on Amazon? Review! Will I make money from it? Am I going to lose a lot of money? It's looking like that so far. Will I feel significant? Like how great will it feel when the book is in my hands? And in studying Ecclesiastes, I'm like, it's just going to be heaven. You know, like I praise the Lord. I'm going to grab the book. It's going to feel like smoke. It's just going to dissipate and just go on to the next one, right? Like that's kind of what I've been assuming after reading these things. Like great, next project. But actually, I'm like, no, that's not the point. See, we have to remember When reading Ecclesiastes, this is all what happens if you don't pursue God. But if you pursue God, if the resurrection is true, these gifts are gifts. They don't have to be hevel. And this passage made me realize these are questions I'm having to ask in my own life. Well, number one, for my book, did I write this book to worship God? I said, yes. All right, check number one. That's worship. Did I write this book from a place of gifting, from a place of passion? Was it like really fulfilling just working on it? Yes. Okay. Checkbox number two. That's calling. Did I write this book for a specific group of people? And do I believe it's going to help them? Yes. Checkbox number three. Service. And so that's what I'm realizing. Okay. In order to find whatever it is in your life God is calling you to, we have to work through those three questions. Am I doing it for the Lord? Does it fit my skill set? And, and is it going to serve and bless people? If the answer is yes, we can truly say life isn't heaven. We have a balanced perspective and there is joy to come. Look at verse 24. We looked at it last week. It's another application of it this week. There is nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. So he's just saying how meaningless it was and how hard it is and somebody else is going to take it when you die. But then he has this moment of realization, even so, we just need to enjoy it. And I have seen that this is from God's hand. This is the disposition we have. Everything is from him. Because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from God? But here's verse 26 I want to zero in on. He says, For to the person who is pleasing in his sight, He gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Zero in on this. When we talk about sinner versus those who is pleasing, we have to remember 
this, this writer was a little bit confused because he doesn't know Jesus yet, right? He's infused by the Holy Spirit, but still there's some things that don't make sense. But now in light of Jesus coming to save us, we're pleasing in God's sight, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Amen? Amen. And so here's what we have to see in this text that's helpful here. We have to see, okay, actually, let's, let's put this uh, next screen. Here's the crescendo. How do I make sure work works for me? Your vision of God's delight determines the version of your despair. Verse 26 is saying, if God delights in you, there is joy in your work. And it has like this eternal impact. We have to ask ourselves, does God delight in me? And our natural thought is to think, okay, well, I sinned this week, so therefore there's no way God delights in me. But friends, we need to preach the gospel to our hearts. The good news of Jesus is if you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God always delights in you because he sees you as his child. He sees the righteousness of Christ in you. And so if you have despair, it's because you have forgotten God's delight. You see that? When we work... There's a temptation to despair, to think it's all useless. But if we remember, as we are working, we have a Father who delights in what we are doing. This has a way to take away our despair and to find joy in the midst of what we're doing. So I want us to think through what's a practice that we can engage with. What's, what's something that can remind us this week? Okay, as I'm working, how do I make sure that I delight in God because God delights in me. So I want to leave you tonight with a breath prayer. If you've been around long enough, you, you know what this is. In case you, you don't, if you're new around here, a breath prayer is simply this really short prayer. That's why it says breath. And in theory, you can say it all in one breath. But this breath prayer is this idea where you write it down on your notes or you put it on your hand and throughout the day, you just kind of think about it and declare it over your life. And I think as we read Ecclesiastes, as we're engaging in work, this needs to be the breath prayer of our, over our life. Saying, in Christ, I am the delight of God. So if work is amazing this week, in Christ, I am the delight of God. If work is a struggle, things don't seem to be working, feels a little bit heavy, remind your soul, in Christ, I am the delight of God. We see this all throughout the scripture. Psalm 18, for example, verse 19, it says, God brought me into a broad place. God rescued me. Why? Because he delighted in me. God delights in you. Psalm 147, verse 11, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him in those, uh, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Did you know the Lord takes pleasure in you? Not because you perform for him this week, but because in Christ you are the delight of God. Psalm, one, Psalm 149, verse 4, For the Lord takes pleasure. He takes delight in his people. God adorns the humble with salvation. This is a promise for God's children. And I know this is a journey for some of us. I want to encourage you as you're thinking through worship, calling, 
service. Maybe you're only checking one box or two. We pray that we can even help you as your pastor. I want to help alongside of you. How do you find all three? But what is for sure in this journey, we can find joy in our work when we declare over our own souls and over our own life in Christ. I am the delight of God. That makes work so meaningful.